if you're not steady, if you don't have some identity as a business culture already that you have ritualized into your processes. You know, there's a lot of companies that have values, but you wouldn't know it unless you looked at the employee handbook. It never right. comes up. So it's not really sturdy at the center of things. But if you if you ritualize those values, then when hard moments come, you lean on them and you make them sort of the more important thing, right? Okay, how do we deal with the animosity between these colleagues over this political issue, given that our value is this? Um, and that, that gives you a, a great way to start. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. There was a time when the expectation that one not discuss politics or religion in the workplace might be honored. But back then, our lives and our workplaces, or at least our worker groups, were typically less demographically diverse than they are today. We were, in the words of today's guest, in our own silos. Today, though, we are much more likely to encounter people with significantly different worldviews. The marketplace of ideas is much larger in our society, but rather than explore other ideas, it often seems that we are more hardened in our own convictions. And just as the ideological divide has widened in the U.S., it has in workplaces as well. In many cases, this has led to distrust and unhealthy conflict in the workplace. And too often, business leaders' well-intentioned responses to this conflict has often been ham-fisted, only exacerbating the problems. Joining me today to discuss how organizations can have healthy dialogue about social and political issues is Monica Guzman. Monica is a journalist and author. She's also Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels, the nation's largest cross-partisan grassroots organization working to depolarize America. And she is founder and CEO of Reclaim Curiosity, an organization working to build a more curious world. And as an example of how her approach crosses the political divide, her book, I never thought of it that way, how to Have Fearless, Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times was featured on the Glenn Beck podcast and named a New York Times recommended read. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Monica. Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me. So how would you describe the U.S. social and political landscape today? Oof. Uh, well, I think a lot of us feel the, the division and the impacts of it. Uh, there's a lot of polling out there that has shown that more and more people see toxic polarization, division, the dysfunction that it brings as one of the top issues that we need to address somehow. But what I like to say to sum it up is that we are so divided, we're blinded. Um, there's also been a lot of research looking at the political divide and showing that when people on one side are asked to estimate, guess at the views of the people on the other, we consistently exaggerate. Uh, we consistently get it wrong. There's a lot of animosity across that divide. And that animosity is leading to a lot of emotion, a lot of reaction, and not a whole lot of seeing clearly people's motives for believing what they believe and the nature of the debates themselves. So I like to say that there's, <laughs> that it, that there's an SOS um, we are sorting, we are othering, and we are siloing. 
I want to get into those three because that's a big part of, of your book and of understanding what's going on. But how do you see, I mean, what we're doing in the real world and how we relate to people outside of the workplace inevitably comes into the workplace. And how do you see that affecting uh, the way we work and the, the environments we work in? Well, all politics is personal. That's how it feels. It's it's a real height of that. I think that in prior generations, people don't remember necessarily being in a moment where it felt like politics was around every corner, coming up in every situation. But that's where we are today. So there's just not really a realm of our lives where something political couldn't become present very quickly. And because there are such high stakes and also high emotion and high reaction to so many of those issues, then it's it's got the it's got the capacity to very quickly disrupt or change the tenor of a conversation anywhere in our lives, including and maybe especially the workplace in some ways, because you don't choose your colleagues, <laughs> right? Uh, you don't choose your family either in some ways. And that's another realm where people just have to deal with a lot of difference, even if they don't want to. But the workplace is, is another where, you know, the workplace may borrow from a local area and just a bunch of people who have all kinds of different ideas. More frequently, it borrows not even from a local area because a lot of businesses are remote. So you're really drawing from a wide field and lots of different geographies, people in blue states and red states and all of that. So you're throwing together quite a mix. And again, it's not like you can just avoid them. So it's it's become pretty tense. Yeah, I remember early in my career, which is well over 30 years ago, um, the the I was in aerospace at at the time of the first Gulf War, and um, as uh, you know, I, I wasn't on board with the first Gulf War, and but you didn't dare say that in that environment um, because well, and, and I may well have just been othering. I may have been making assumptions about the other, you know, what what the rest of my my peers. Uh, War, but I, you know, I was in, you know, an environment that uh, was part of, for lack of a better term, part of the military industrial complex. And, you know, and, and we directly uh, financially benefited from that. And so I wouldn't have ever mentioned that, you know, uh, erased those issues. I think uh, young professionals today would be less intimidated to raise those, those issues. Um, how much of this do you think is generational versus just uh, we're just rubbing up on a whole bunch of other kinds of people than, than maybe we would have before? Yeah, I think most of the time issues like these have some generational thing happening. And in this case, we see a lot of other trends. And one of them is we've really turned inward in the last 20, 30 years social media and our technology have allowed us to do that in a really fascinating way. And what has accompanied that is a sense that our companies should be taking care of us as individuals. And that in the workplace, you know, I need care as an employee. So that didn't used to be the expectation of the employer at all. <laughs> right. I'll and, show up um, at eight. I'll leave at five. You'll pay me a paycheck and I'll go live my life. And that's it. Right. But but now there is more of an expectation that, hey, wherever I am, whoever's in charge, you know, really needs to make sure that there is an environment here that supports me. And if there isn't, I'm going to have a real problem with that. So 
there, there's a fun, <laughs> fun and weird and not so fun tension between the external and the internal. Uh, and you know, who's responsible for my comfort sort of thing. Um, and I, and I think it has definitely, you know, sided on my employer needs to make sure that I'm taken care of and that I can work well. And that's, that's on them. Um, in some cases, maybe more than I think it's on me. So people will have different, different ideas about that. Some people will say, no, it's all on me. So I don't understand what all the fuss is about. Why is everyone yelling at our boss about how we're talking about this or that issue? That's not their problem. And so some people think it is their problem and some people think it's really not. And yeah, we had, uh, one of our early guests, uh, well over a hundred episodes ago, uh, we talked about the idea of psychological safety. And that idea that when I come to work, I want to feel safe. And I, I, I have a tendency to be a little skeptical of some of that, that language only because I think there's a, depending on how you define safety, I think there's a population out there that means safety means I never encounter opinions or, or facts for that matter that I disagree with or that are, you know, outside of my own experience. And I think, that definition of safety is kind of at the heart of of some of the conflict that we're we're experiencing when when just the mere exposure uh, to to alternative ideas, things that are either contrary to our traditional beliefs or contrary to our our more, more progressive beliefs. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who just don't want to engage in that. And I think in the workplace, um, we had an issue in our company back uh, in the t- 2020 election with um, uh, we had a uh, an employee. She had a very pro-Trump bumper stickers and and stuff on her car, and so that offended an, another employee who the next day came with shoe polish written on the back window of his car, wow. basically saying "F Trump." And so, oh wow, uh, and so. We, you know, one of our core values is as uh, uh, work as one with compassion and respect. And so, you know, uh, the three of us just had a real frank conversation about that value and how we want to live it out. And and when we put them together, they, it wasn't the bumper sticker talking to the back window. It was two people who work alongside each other. And it wasn't that kind of, it wasn't as big an issue as, as as it seemed just, you know, when you're looking at their vehicles. Uh, but there were hurt feelings on both sides, and and I'm glad we addressed it when we did. But, you know, we make these assumptions about other people because they're aligned differently than us. And it is weird. I still think it as, you know, as, as the small L libertarian in the room, and, you know, I'm usually the oddball out anyway, but I think it's weird that we expect that we know somebody's position on one issue and we can – make an assumption about their, their position on 15 other issues. And maybe in a broad sense, that's generally true, but I don't think it's ever fair just to pigeonhole somebody like that. No, that's right. And, and the way I put that is um, it's a pernicious assumption in our politics and a very common one that if you oppose what I support, you must hate what I love. And mm. so that's a lot of what animates it. But, but if you get curious, you see a political bumper sticker your brain is going to download a lot of assumptions about why they believe that thing, especially if it opposes your own beliefs, then you may have attached a lot of, you know, urgent kind of malevolence to it. But again, because we know from the research that we exaggerate so often and that a lot of the animosity is not founded on what people actually believe or why, we need to be asking more questions. 
So I want to get to what leaders uh, and just team members uh, can can do to improve that those kind of conversations when they come up in the workplace. But let's just talk on an individual level first. If I want to be, I like that that the the term in your in the title of your book and that you just used curiosity, and I think that's the real tool that that makes a difference. Talk about how individuals can use curiosity to respond to what might otherwise be conflict uh, when they when they encounter somebody who's different. So curiosity is a cognitive ability we all have, and what the the, the research from neurology has shown us is that. It's sparked whenever we pay attention to the gap between something we know and something we want to know. And, um, you know, throughout history, curiosity has driven a lot of obsessions and interest and adventures where you just need to find something out. It's, it's like scratching at you. And so you go, you go, you go. But curiosity is only alive so long as your attention is on that gap between something you know and something you want to know. There's a bunch of things that can take your attention away from that gap or that can cover up that gap before it really should. So assumptions are one of the bigger ones. Um, I think of certainty, you know, being certain as the archvillain of curiosity, because if Mm. you think you know, you won't think to ask. So really, it's a question of when do you when do you get to certainty, even manufacture certainty when you're not really certain? And unfortunately, in high stress, high anxiety situations, when we have a question, it's really uncomfortable to hold on to that question. How could people do so-and-so, right? It's really uncomfortable. So we're actually motivated to get to certainty too quickly. We'll read a thought piece on the internet. It'll tell us a bunch of statistics and it'll sound really confident about this whole group of people and we'll believe it. And so because we believe it, we're certain, we'll stop being curious. And that means we won't catch our assumptions in the act. And I think of assumptions as certainty's little minions, covering up the gaps between what we know and what we don't know and preventing us from being curious. But if we're not curious, then we're going to walk around believing a lot of things that may not be true, making our own lives more stressful, you know, assuming things about other people that really may be unfair. Uh, there's a lot of downsides. So so it's really about curiosity. In order to be curious, we, we have to begin by turning our assumptions into questions, which means we have to catch ourselves in the act of assuming. So someone's got a Trump bumper sticker if you're on the left. Okay, what are you assuming? Right. <laughs> are those things true about that person? First of all, right? And then get curious about your own reaction. What's your reaction? Where is it coming from? What questions can you ask yourself? Get, get open to that and you'll be able to potentially use that as an opportunity to connect with other people and to learn about the world and other people's perspectives. Now, that's super tough to do when you, you hold you know, beliefs that this other belief is harmful to the world. And we can get to that. That becomes very difficult emotionally to do. But, but, the, but the process is still the same. You still cannot be certain of many of the things you assume. We still cannot know other people until we know other people. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're in North Texas, I want to make sure that you're aware of Fort Worth HR's Strategic Mindset Conference next Friday, September 15th. This conference is good for six hours of recertification credit. And if you're an SPHR like me, those are the ever elusive business credits. 
The topics are wide-ranging. Technology, business strategy, workforce analytics, finance, it's all there. You can get more information on the Fort Worth HR Strategic Mindset Conference and register at fwhr.org. But do it today because registration probably ends tomorrow. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 112 and enter the keyword curious. That's C-U-R-I-O-U-S. And now back to my conversation with Monica Guzman. So how do we develop that skill? Um, How do we get to the point where First, I guess we recognize those biases or, you know, the, the pre-programmed, uh, you know, responses um, that are based on our own experiences at some point, um, but then get to the point where we can dive into the curious piece and, and, and start to, rather than let whatever we're feeling, whether it's anger or defensiveness or whatever, feed into us and, and affect our relationship with this, this other person. How do we mm-hmm. get to, how, how do we develop that skill to actually explore and have a conversation with that person about, you know, what's underlying their right. position? There are many on ramps. I think one of the first ones, especially as you're kind of beginning this is to think about, Uh, Another pernicious assumption we make across the political divide, and let's be honest, any disagreement, where we want to believe that the other person is crazy, stupid, or evil. And I've been there in a workplace where these assumptions ran rampant. You know, they're out to get me. They're terrible. They're trying to ruin this team. They're stupid. I don't know why they even got hired here. Uh, They're out of their mind, right? The, The thing about those three beliefs is that with extraordinarily rare exceptions, they're never true. They're just not. So so one way to start is if you notice yourself believing that in your mind, just telling yourself, that's not true. So I need to ask questions. What am I missing is the main question to ask. What am I missing? This It seems crazy what this person wants to do with this project. It seems crazy what this person believes politically, but it's not. It's not crazy to them. It makes sense. Everybody has their reasons. I just need to go and find out what those are. Now, it's not always the right time to go and find out what those are. (laughs) So that's a whole separate thing is like tact, right? Do you need to know? Like maybe you just need to find a bit of peace uh, about you can't change other people and find an acceptance of that. But if you you do want to know, if it is in the way, if you do want to take the opportunity to learn from someone who's different from you, then, then ask that question. Find a way to it. Ask it in a small way. Make it really short. Move on. I I like to say that the best conversation is the one that you can pick up again later. You don't have to satisfy whatever it is that you want to know in the course of one conversation. And in fact, a lot of us kind of sabotage our own conversations that way by having too much demand from that conversation in the moment. But relationships are important in the workplace and everywhere else. And so that's got to be a consideration. And when you were talking about curiosity, Innovation is such a big part of of any successful business, and you don't have innovation if you live in a world of certainty, just as you approach your business in general. So, you know, it would make sense for business leaders, you know, to say, okay, 
we want we want innovation. So we want curiosity. And then if you see, you know, this level of certainty around even, you know, social or political issues that don't directly affect the company, but, you know, manifesting strongly in your organization, then maybe as a leader, you should need to start questioning, are we really even creating that that innovative uh, and, and curious environment, you know, related to our business, if, if, if our folks are so easily falling into the, these, these kind of certainty. Well, and that I think is the most important thing to keep in mind here, because if you're a business, you're actually extremely well incentivized for curiosity already. You can't survive as a business. If you think you have all the answers, you'll be outperformed at the next turn. That's just not how it works. People talk about the innovator's dilemma, right? That trap where you think you're at the top and then you stop paying attention. You you need to stay open to the way the world is changing. Your customers are changing, product needs, your team. You've got to. I, my One of my favorite stories on this point is the former GM CEO, Alfred P. Sloan, this legend of business, was um, in a meeting with one of his top committees and looking around the room and he's like, hey, okay, it sounds like there's agreement on this piece of the agenda. Is that right? And everybody's like, yeah, 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 there's agreement. And he goes, okay, then I'm going to table this topic till our next meeting. So you all have time to develop disagreement and see what is actually going on. And I love that because it really points to that idea that if you are not curious, you become blind. There are things you do not see about the complexity of an issue. So in business, we are incentivized by money <laughs> to make sure that we don't fall into those traps. And, and it becomes extremely important to make sure that people can criticize each other, that people can bring up alternative ideas, that people don't cling to some gut feeling too quickly or become certain in any way. So, so yeah, the workplace is the perfect place, um, the necessary place for curi- a curious culture to prevail. And so if I want to build that into my culture, if I want my culture to include that curiosity, uh, both related to, you know, executing the mission of the organization, whether it's, you know, increasing profits or, you know, extending a social service or whatever. Um, or it's also about maintaining harmony and respect and cooperation in the workplace. How might I do that? I mean, you know, because we've we've certainly seen how not to do it over the last three years after George Floyd's murder and then mm-hmm. COVID, and well, COVID, then George Floyd's murder and then the BLM movement and and then January 6th, we, we saw a lot of, you know, clumsy efforts by leaders uh, to, to do different things, often just responding to whatever seemed to be the loudest activist employee group and, and, and then ultimately alienating other other uh, parts of the organization. How, how, how should a leader respond to those tensions, but also create a culture where you can have, uh, I guess, probably healthy conversation versus a debate in, environment where we're trying to yeah. convince the other party? Uh, there's a lot of places to go here. One is I'll just shout out what you were saying before uh, in your experience where there was a value that was strong in the culture of an organization and a political issue got to be talked about in context of, hey, this is our value. So what do we do? And it was a conversation among the people affected and a candid one, it sounds like. So I think that's important is it's easy to be thrown about by all these things. If, you, if you're if you not steady, if you don't have some 
identity as a business culture already that you have ritualized into your processes. You know, there's a lot of companies that have values, but you wouldn't know it unless you looked at the employee handbook. It never right. comes up. So it's not really sturdy at the center of things. But if you if you ritualize those values, then when hard moments come, you lean on them and you make them sort of the more important thing, right? Okay, how do we deal with the animosity between these colleagues over this political issue, given that our value is this? Um, and that, that gives you a, a great way to start. Another thing is there are other routines that you can try in your teams to build resilience. And one of them that I absolutely love and I've used in teams that I've managed, um, you know, of, of like seven, eight people is what's called a user manual. I absolutely love this idea. So this is about uh, a team, yeah, every member of the team answering some prompt questions about how they tend to work best with others. These are my pet peeves. You know, I really prefer getting email on these things, going on Slack for these things. You know, you should know that like the phone call is a little weird for me for these reasons. You do, you, you, and then you like present that to each other. And now everybody kind of knows and understands that everybody's different. And I think that's one of the most important things. A lot of times we think because I work this way, other people work this way. So I don't understand their reactions to me when I say this or that. And it's like, well, when you're in the heat of the moment is not a good time to learn those things about each other. So instead, learn them outside the heat. And then when something comes up, it's more likely that people will not say that person is crazy, stupid, or evil. They'll say, oh, that person just writes really short, curt emails <laughs> that sound right. rude. So maybe I should not assume that when they said that about my reaction to something political that they were being as mean as I heard. So there's, there's those kinds of things that can really help. And then the last thing I'll mention is leadership is everything because in a workplace, there's power structures. They're just there. So if, cur if a curious mindset and posture and approach is not modeled at the top, there's just, it's doomed. So that means you need leaders who take responsibility and hold each other accountable for having a more flexible way of talking for when they say, does anyone have any questions? that they actually mean it. Right. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of leaders who are like, this is what I think, but I don't, but does anyone have any questions? No one's going to say anything because, you know, depending on their personality and how they've modeled that. But a leader who every now and then shares back to their team, hey, I just want you to know, like, remember the other day when I said this? Well, Mary talked with me and I realized I was wrong about this point and I changed my mind. And I, so thank you, Mary, for coming and giving me that feedback. Okay, so now we're talking about this. Uh, I want to hear what you all think. Uh, another good tip is for leaders to not be the first mover, you know, be the convener. And I can go on and on. There's so many things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if there's a tough issue on your team, don't just ask for spoken opinions. If you want opinions, have people write things down and then speak so that the first person to speak doesn't end up like becoming a tentpole that everybody else comes around, right? You need to just have structures and routines that keep you flexible and that give people, yes, if you wanna call it safe spaces, you can, but really what we mean is just the space to be honest, room to be honest, make it easy for people to be candid with their feedback to each other. And I, we're coming up on time you, uh, with the book and everything and all your other stuff, you've got a tight schedule, but I wanna, I wanna ask what, if I'm a leader who wants to, you know, certainly, the book is a really good start. Uh, it's, uh, but if I'm a leader who wants to hone those skills, uh, you know, develop so I can model it, develop curiosity, you know, that kind of curiosity based conversation, where would I go to, to engage in, in that kind of, uh, conversation or to learn how to, you know, to develop those skills? 
Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, anywhere in your life, I think one of the things we assume is that, okay, because we are more sorted politically, it's true, we are, blue zip codes are getting bluer, red zip codes are getting redder, then there's no disagreement anywhere and I can't practice this stuff. And, and that's just not true. What, one of the ways in which our divisions blind us is to the nuanced differences within one side. You know, issues are complex. All of them are. So, I mean, frankly, just like talk to somebody about whether Barbie is better than Oppenheimer. Um, I just saw Barbie the other day. Oppenheimer's coming up on Wednesday. I don't know. Fi- Star Trek and Star Wars. Anything you want. But but practice. Well, I can answer that one for you, but OK. Yeah. I mean, I'm Star Trek and I'm not going <laughs> to not going to entertain any. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but no, it's precisely that you can pick even something a little bit silly. That, that means something to you where you tend to be reactionary. And so I absolutely love Star Trek, right? So literally when someone tells me that they like Star Wars more, like my husband, I have to, I have to kind of restrain myself and remember things like people can only hear when they're heard. What am I missing? You know, I, <laughs> I have such strong opinions about the superiority of Star Trek. So I really have to kind of like stop myself from jumping in with my opinion as soon as they give theirs i want to interrupt and be like no no no, but and and so it's a way to practice so you really don't even have to pick a political issue pick anything anything where there might be some disagreement and you just practice listening and asking curious questions you know asking about people's experiences my husband saw you know, my first my husband has a as i mentioned in the book a, a life-size yoda doll that's limited edition and is staring at us all the time when we walk by so you know, when you understand <laughs> how it goes back to his childhood, you're right. like, okay, I don't agree, but I see where you're coming from. And that's really the point. I think a lot of us have this this innate desire, and especially probably the folks who tend to end up in leadership in organizations have the, the experience of convincing people they're right. And and really having that be the objective, and it's it it's, seems that a lot of times being right or or, or having the other person switch their position it won't make any difference in the big scale, um, but but getting to where we at least understand, or you know even if we don't agree with that they're they're one plus one you know, plus one, it really equals two, um, understanding where they're coming from and, and showing that respect that, that you talk about so much, the, and that curiosity at least will, will make the, the conflict not negative and, and not disruptive and not painful. Well, not only that, persuasion is all but impossible. True persuasion is all but impossible if you don't understand where they're coming from. If they feel that you get them, they become more intellectually humble. This is proven by research. If you do not get them, why even bother trying to change their mind? So so understanding is the first step toward persuasion, always is. Well, that's great. And I I so appreciate your time. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Monica. Yeah, thank you, Mike. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, 
please don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.